I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out and all dropped off But I Hello and welcome to another colourful episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we look back at the young adult fiction of yesteryear, feverishly searching for missed classics or perhaps favourites from the springtime of our youth as we pine for a way back into the other realms that entranced us as teens. On alternate episodes, we look to the future, sampling the young adult fiction written for a post-Potter, millennial-infested world. My name is Laurie. And I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the precise Keith Rowe. Hello. And the nurturing Bree. Good evening. This episode, Bree unleashes a wolf in sheep's clothing upon us. A dystopia posing as a utopia in the well-regarded and much-studied science fiction work, The Giver, by Lois Lowry. Is this science fiction? I thought it was fantasy. Uh, Yeah, it's science fiction because it's... Don't, don't. Don't even give her the pleasure, Keith. Sorry. <laughs> okay. All right, go. But first, a warning. Citizens are reminded that all books examined by the hosts are broken down to their most fundamental parts. If revelation of these parts causes feelings then please report to the medical facility immediately for a review of your dosing. Feelings are chaos. Feelings are chaos. Feelings are chaos. Bree! That sounded a little Dalek to me. It sounded Monty Python-esque to me. Bree, would you please give us a sample of the opening pages of the book? It was almost December, and Jonas was beginning to be frightened. No, wrong word, Jonas thought. Frightened meant that deep, sickening feeling of something terrible about to happen. Frightened was the way he had felt a year ago when an unidentified aircraft had overflown the community twice. He had seen it both times. Squinting towards the sky, he had seen the sleek jet, almost a blur at its high speed, go past, and a second later heard the blast of sound that followed. Then one more time, a moment later, from the opposite direction, the same plane. At first he had been only fascinated. He had never seen aircraft so close, for it was against the rules for pilots to fly over the community. Occasionally, when supplies were delivered by cargo planes to the landing field across the river, the children rode their bicycles to the riverbank and watched, intrigued, the unloading and then the takeoff directed to the west, always away from the community. But the aircraft a year ago had been different. It was not a squat, fat-bellied cargo plane, but a needle-nosed single-pilot jet. Jonas, looking around anxiously, had seen others, adults as well as children, stop what they were doing and wait, confused, for an explanation of the frightening event. Then all of the citizens had been ordered to go into the nearest building and stay there. Immediately, the rasping voice through the speakers had said, Leave your bicycles where they are. Instantly, obediently, Jonas had dropped his bike on its side on the path behind his family's dwelling. He had run indoors and stayed there alone. 
His parents were both at work and his little sister Lily was at the childcare centre where she spent her after-school hours. Looking through the front window, he had seen no people. None of the busy afternoon crew of street cleaners, landscape workers and food delivery people who usually populated the community at that time of day. He saw only the abandoned bikes here and there on their sides. An upturned wheel on one was still revolving slowly. He had been frightened then. The sense of his own community silent, waiting, had made his stomach churn. He had trembled. But it had been nothing. Within minutes, the speakers had crackled again and the voice, reassuring now and less urgent, had explained that a pilot in training had misread his navigational instructions and made a wrong turn. Desperately, the pilot had been trying to make his way back before his error was noticed. Needless to say, he will be released, the voice had said, followed by silence. Wow, thanks, Bree. That's really interesting to revisit now that I've finished the book. Mm. It's pretty par for the course in terms of setting up the dystopian setting, I'd say. Compliant citizens, a faceless voice issuing instructions to that readily compliant mass, and lots of roles or occupations that are capitalised, like proper nouns, indicating that very deliberate assignment and the division of society up into, I guess, labour groups. But just because it's familiar, it doesn't mean it's not uninteresting. Hmm. I love that kind of stuff. But that plane, that's an unintended red herring here, I think. I immediately leapt to the conclusion that the plane, or maybe the pilot, was going to be a source of disruption for the place. Perhaps the pilot might parachute in and start whispering a few words of dissent that would be seeds to grow in the protagonist's heart before being whisked away by security or something like that. But it turns out it was completely irrelevant later on. So, yeah, interesting hearing that little snippet of the book again. Capital R, Release, which you can't tell in a reading, but Release that's mentioned at the end, He Will Be Released, is capitalised, or the R is capitalised, And it's one of those very lightly concealed twists that come later in the book that I guessed immediately, which is a bit sad. You watch or read enough perfect community utopia come dystopia tales and you know that imperfection doesn't get gently waved out the front gate with a friendly, if regretful smile. You know something bad's coming. So I'm locked in and I'm pretty much looking forward to the ride from there on. Does it speak to you, Keith? Yeah, I'm intrigued for some of the same reasons that you are there. Not only the familiarity in the dystopian kind of utopia that we were presented with here, but also there is still several similarities to our own society and it's easy to make those connections here in the opening. We're introduced to a couple of different points of conflict. Immediately, it's Jonas here worried about something that's happening in December and we don't find out here what that is. But that's a point of interest to me. Then, of course, the treatment of this aircraft is also interesting. So I'm intrigued at this point and wanting to read more. Bree? Yes, I was surprised that the aircraft didn't come back. It immediately gets your attention. Is it somebody from the outside who's just checking out the world? If it's a very different looking plane to the one they've ever seen, where does it come from? What's going on? The idea of that perfect sounding compliant society is interesting. It also has echoes of, Laurie, I think you referred to them earlier as the greats that came before it, Mm. echoes of other books. 1984, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's the one that immediately springs to mind, that sort of perfect society. Can't wait to read more. Okay, Keith, take us beyond the opening pages. What comes next? 
Eleven-year-old Jonas lives in the community. It's a highly ordered group of people living within a restricted and controlled geography where all members are prescribed their role and position. It's set at an undisclosed time in the future, and it's a utopian community where all of the evils have been removed. Members are protected from pain, poverty, war, discrimination and crime amongst other ills, and live comfortable, protected lives. Of course, the reality is that this utopia is anything but. Instead, it's our good old friend dystopia. Under the peaceful, safe and comfortable facade, this is a dysfunctional community and it's essentially not a great place to be. The people there just haven't realised it yet. Uh, I reckon you're like adding your opinion. What? (laughs) No. I'm in agreement, but proceed. The people are happy. They don't know any different. Keep going. No, that's a great point. Probably I shouldn't tarnish a synopsis with my own feelings. They might be happy, but are they joyous? Like, I don't know if they reach that level of happiness that you get to. We need to have this discussion, but what I'm saying is that the people are perfectly content. Mm. That's what the design of the community is. Mm. Just because we disagree with it, maybe. (laughs) All right, let's save this. Let's let the listeners get through what's in the book first. Yeah, I'll tell a bit more about this place. So everything's controlled by a council of elders. They set the rules and see to it that they are stringently enforced. The idea is that everyone thinks, looks, and more or less acts the same. People that don't follow the rules of the highly structured community or don't fit their template are released. To the residents, this involves letting them go or forcing them to leave the community. We only later learn the true meaning of released. Although Laurie, and I think myself to a lesser degree, picked it from the beginning, maybe not the exact mechanics of it. So, Jonas's mother works for the Department of Justice and his father is a nurturer, taking care of babies before they're assigned to their family units. That's right, babies are farmed out from birth mothers, women chosen for that specific role. Every December, babies are assigned to family units, which are themselves pre-arranged marriages selected for the compatibility of the partners. The babies are assigned numbers based on the order of their birth, and that sticks with them through their lives as they move up the ranks until they reach the age of 12. It's at 12 that everyone is assigned to their profession, and this is precisely what Jonas is so afraid of. In the annual ceremony, when it comes his turn to be assigned a profession, Jonas is skipped with no explanation. Soon after, it's revealed that he has been selected to be the next receiver of memory. It's a huge deal, as there's only one receiver in the entire community. When his training begins, Jonas learns that as the new receiver, he will be passed a library of memories from the near and distant past, with the general idea being that when needed by the elders, he can be called upon to provide insight. Meanwhile, Jonas's family have temporarily adopted a baby, Gabriel, who's struggling to sleep and meet the normal checkpoints required before being assigned out to a family. As Jonas has more and more memories of the past transferred to him, he begins to realise just how controlled and muted their lives in the community are. He also realises that all his life he and everyone else in the community have seen no colour and he develops his ability to see the colour beyond. He learns what love and other true human emotions feel like, and his training also reveals just what being released is. It's a lethal injection given to the elderly, repeat transgressors of the law, and even babies who aren't developing at the prescribed pace. This is the final straw for Jonas, who along with the incumbent receiver, formulates a plan where Jonas will fake his own death and escape to elsewhere, a place beyond the controlled reach of the elders a place where colours, feelings and true emotions still exist. But before they can carry out the plan, Jonas learns that the baby Gabriel is about to be released. Forced into action, he steals his dad's bike and makes a break for it with the baby. 
Jonas and the baby have little food and they're soon starving. The weather is cold and their bike can't handle the ice and snow. They manage to evade the searches for them, and what happens next is open to interpretation. Jonas does everything he can to keep them both alive, and just as they reach the final metaphorical precipice, they either sled into a town of welcoming people, with colour and music and all the things missing from the community, or they find something similar in their own death. That's up to you. There's my synopsis. I've got a bit more of a spoiler to come, but anything to add there, guys? Oh, yeah, it was the spoiler I thought you weren't going to mention right there. The only other thing I thought is that if you just want to leave, you get released as well. Like, yep, I'd like to go Mm. outside, please. And they're like, okay, come through this door. We'll release you. (laughs) (laughs) And not only that, we will give you a big party and then kill you. Good stuff, isn't it? Everyone that didn't know in the community believed it was just being let go. There was people, as we learn later, that did know exactly what being released was, but no one spoke the truth. But even the father, like Jonas's father, he was responsible for euthanizing babies or releasing babies. And he's like just happily jabbing the baby in the head saying, yeah, this will only hurt for a minute. You'll be fine. Oh, God, please Mm. don't remind me of that. I can't cope with the memory. All right, I'll block ears for a second. And then he just pops it in a box and sends it down a chute. And he doesn't even have any emotional response to it. It's not like, oh, I've just killed a baby. Like, I'm a good person or a bad person. It doesn't even come into his mind. He thinks he's just released the baby. There's no emotional attachment to that activity. So they're really a bit ignorant of what's going on, even the people performing the euthanasia. Yeah, it was pretty disturbing, that part of it, the way in which his father carried it out almost cheerily (laughs) yeah he was singing to the baby and then jabs its forehead with death serum i just had the most strong reaction to a few pages in a book that i had with that i did say to laurie at the time that it's amongst the most disturbing things we've read as part of seeking tumness you said it was the most disturbing of all time i think it's of all time that i've read we can lend you a few books laurie corrected me yeah What's more disturbing? Uh, Getting locked in a cupboard with a dead baby, shackled to a pole with no food until you starve to death almost. Mm. Was that another one of my choices? (laughs) No, I think that one was Pat's, but that is a good Mm. point, Brie. Why did you choose this baby-killing book? Ah, yes. So I have very fond memories of reading Lois Lowry as a... I wouldn't say a teenager. It would have been childhood, certainly, probably up to about the age of 12. She wrote this series called Anastasia Krupnik and it follows this 12-year-old girl as she goes through some very average situations like moving house and having to cope with going to a new school and so on and so forth. Fairly mundane, run-of-the-mill type stuff. So I thought, Lois Lowry, fantastic. That's an author I remember. I've got her on my bookshelf. I'll give The Giver a go. Did not read anything about it. Selected it. Was totally totally taken aback when I started reading it and realised, well, for starters, just how sci-fi it was and I'd played right into your hands. So you're welcome, (laughs) guys. I won't give away my feelings on the book just yet, but I will just add to my earlier synopsis. Can I ask each of us what we envisioned ourselves when we read the end, which way we took it? I initially was... 
not traumatised, but I was fairly depressed by the ending. I thought that at the very end he'd lost all his energy, that he was suffering from hypothermia, and effectively that Jonas and the baby died out in the snow alone. And then I watched the movie, and the movie had the sort of upbeat Hollywood ending where they do indeed arrive at the house that has the Christmas music playing and a family inside, and it looks warm and inviting, and they make it. So then I went and reread the last few pages again, and it's a lot less clear than my initial reading led me to believe. So I kind of have decided to go the other direction. Oh, that's good. So you had a sort of pessimistic outlook initially and then have changed it. It was only the vaguest, slightest chance of a hint that he might have actually made it. I almost 100% hmm. was convinced that he died. So. I was like, oh. I'm with you. I was totally negative the same. I read it in one sitting, the entire book, cover to cover. It's under 200 pages. It's quite a quick read. And the way that it's set up, I just feel like it leads you in a single setting straight to the depressing outcome. You have the baby being killed. And from that point on, you've got Jonas struggling through incredible adversity over effectively deserts and snowstorms and things to get this baby, this starving baby, to elsewhere, to safety. It just puts you into this can't-possibly-live mindset. It was pretty dire. I think I'm pretty much on board with you guys there that I was the slightest bit of optimism, but mainly I was thinking, yeah, that's the end, really. It was intentionally ambiguous, but... Turns out years after, she's written three other books in this series and those books tell of both Jonas and Gabriel in the years after, so they do survive. Not explicitly, though. I think it's very, very strong hints, but I don't think... I mean, I haven't read them and I probably read some of the same articles as you did, but I don't think they explicitly say Jonas and Gabriel. No, I think they do. I'm pretty sure they do. The most recent book, which is from 2012, entitled Son, I think that's Gabrielle as a 14-year-old. It's 14 years after the escape. So it is a positive outlook. So that's like 20 years after she first wrote this one. Do you think maybe she's caved into a bit of community pressure to have the optimistic Hollywood ending? Well, she actually says that it was intentionally ambiguous, but she herself had a more optimistic outlook. And that's why she filled it out this way. Because, yeah, it is a bit of pressure that it's led to her doing this. But I think in a really positive way. Basically, the question that was always asked of her was what happened at the end to Jonas and the baby. And she always answered that it was intentionally ambiguous and it's up to the reader to make their mind up what happened. But over time, she felt she owed it to the younger readers who in particular weren't able to deal with the ambiguity of the ending as well as others. So that's why she went back to the well, so to speak, and wrote some sequels to that this. That annoys me, actually. Yeah, I'm a bit cynical about that kind of thing too. I think, A, there's probably some mortgage repayments that need to be paid off, and, and this is the best way to sell them. I don't even know whether this is her most popular book. She's a really well-regarded author, and she's written, I think, 45 books at current mm. count. She's 80 years old now and still writing. Mm. And she's really, really well-spoken. I've listened to some interviews with her, and I really like her. If that hasn't come across as yet, <laughs> I didn't spell that out in a very favourable way, but I think she wrote it for all the right reasons. 
and she continues to write for all the right reasons. She sort of said she doesn't have to write. There's no financial need for her to write. She just gets joy from it. So I think mm. she's provided answers to people who couldn't come up with them for themselves and it's a positive outcome. Actually, further to that, since she's written those books, the questions that she receives have changed to be about what happens to the community because that isn't answered in any of the subsequent three books. Mm. And next year actually marks the 25th anniversary of the release of this book and there's a special edition coming out for that. And in that, an epilogue tells what becomes of the community after the end of The Giver. So that's going to be intriguing because I think that's an even more difficult question to answer than what happens to Jonas and the baby. Mm. The movie gives you a version of that, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, I've got some comments on the movie later as well, even though I haven't watched it. So I'm really keen to hear what you guys thought of it. But really, firstly, we should find out what we all thought of the book after I've taken us way off track. Laurie? Yeah, Laurie, what did you think of the book? Dreadful. Simply awful. I've never read a more morally (laughs) and religiously didactic abomination of a book in my life. None of the characters had any redeeming qualities, and I was generally annoyed by the unintelligible plot. Wait. These are my notes for Little Women. (laughs) It was great. Ah. It was great. (laughs) I can see why this book might be read to kids, like Year 6 Kids. Apparently it's popular, probably more in the US, popular as a read aloud book to Year 6 Kids, or 12-year-olds, I guess they are, or chosen as a text for high schoolers to study. There's just such a good array of themes being hit by this book individuality, diversity, the meaning of family, and even the importance of honesty are some of the lesser themes. But freedom versus security is probably the strongest theme of the book, in my opinion. Never before in history have we given governments such broad-reaching ability to dig through our personal lives, justified by the need for security. It's amazing how books like 1984 imagined so vividly the world that we're living in now, We're getting closer to that total surveillance state. And this book is just another perspective, another twist on that sort of same dream. All personal freedoms are stripped from the citizens of this world, as you mentioned, Keith, like the freedom to form families, to choose one's own career, even the freedom to... To go through puberty. Don't they go through puberty? They just have the urges stripped out of them. Yeah, exactly. That's awful. Even the freedom to die naturally are completely removed. So it's uniformity, sameness, precision of language, and obedience. They're all the foundations for this peaceful society. And it's only when Jonas is exposed to the beauty of choice and love and freedom, even in the face of chaos and death and pain, all those horrible memories that he's exposed to, that nothing is better than having self-determination and emotionally rich lives. I really like that. It's... Sadly, not very original. It was done many times, many decades before this book. I think 1984 was written maybe in the late 30s. But being a book for teens, it's a pretty solid effort. There's a few plot holes that don't make sense. Uh, mm. Not only that, I mean, it might have been well after 1984 and so on, but it's also possibly the first for young adults of this type of dystopian. Yeah. And it sort of leads the way for The Hunger Games and all of the others that we've been reading recently. Divergent, I think, in particular, lends heavily from some ideas in this one. Mm. Yeah. In terms of the young adult fiction, I think it's ahead of its time. 
Keep going, Laurie. Yeah, Laurie, you're going to mention some plot holes. I want to hear what you thought they were. Oh, yes. The absence of colour, for example, unless they're living in a simulation, that just doesn't seem plausible. But that's all they know. Yeah, but how does one person see colour and the others don't? What's the mechanism for preventing colour? What, some kind of science fiction? Genetically modify all of them and then have somebody's body develop or have those exceptions. Yeah, I don't know. Humans have been evolving since the beginning of time, so I just kind of looked at it as another way of this kid evolving. Yeah, that's why it's set in the future, to explain or give reason for some of those things that aren't possible now. I can understand that you eliminate the cones in the eye or whatever that see colour or neutralise the parts of the brain that process colour, but he was chosen because he could see colour. So does that mean he's defective or is it just a bit of a loose plot hole that they just had to make somebody see colour so they can move the plot along? I don't know. Oh, come on. We've never had a protagonist with some kind of special ability, have we? (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Yeah, but then how does he overcome that ability? I just wanted to know the mechanism because... Without knowing the mechanism, I thought it was a bit fluffy. (laughs) 200 pages. The other big one was he was trying to escape, not only because Gabriel was going to get euthanised and he wanted to save the child that he'd come to love, but also because if he left the boundaries of the community and a bit further than that, there's like a radius around it in which if he goes too far, then the memories will be released to the community. So the previous receiver, who's now the giver, (laughs) would stay around and help the people deal with this flood of memories that would come back to them all. How does that happen? Again, unless they're in a simulation. I can understand that you can pass memories from person to person via touch. That's maybe something that's evolved or something they genetically manipulated. But having those memories escape out into air and cross time and space and flood into the minds of everybody else seems a bit dodgy. Yeah, the idea of this shared memory space wasn't really explained in much detail. Unless they're all psychic. Nor was it clear at the end whether that actually happened or if it was just a theory. Yeah, exactly. It happened with the previous receiver in training. That's how they knew what would happen. Wow. Oh, that's right. The previous receiver, when she was being trained, Mm -hmm. partway through her training, she got freaked out, probably in the same way that Jonas did, and her reaction was to just leave. And at the moment where she left the boundaries of the community, I guess, that's when the thoughts came flooding into the community, and that caused all sorts of problems. So that's why they talked about it with such worry about the last receiver, because they couldn't mention her name and all sorts of things like that because of the trauma that she brought upon these people by simply leaving and spreading these memories. Mm. Mm. I don't know. Those couple of plot holes, they didn't ruin the experience for me, but they certainly made sure it wasn't a perfect book. The only other note I had was something that I've already talked about. The ending was initially a bit too depressing, but having watched the movie and reread the book and come at it from a different angle, it's definitely not as cut and dry as I initially thought it was. I think there's hope, even if it's an unlikely hope. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder whether it's our adult sensibilities giving it the more negative overview as opposed to children who may have been more willing to be positive about what happened at the end. Good point. I think I was so shocked by the killing of the baby incident that after that it was just a struggle. It sort of puts you into a frame of mind that is bleak and 
you can't understand how these people cannot feel something for something so small and helpless. It certainly leads you down that pathway. Yeah, in their defence, they're being drugged daily. Yes, totally agree. And you know that that is how they're dealing with it. You know that they're having their senses dulled for so that they can't feel joy or pain or love or happiness. They just feel the same. Even when they're sharing their feelings, it's an odd experience. It's like they're sharing feelings that they've read about and that they should know about, but not something that's true. <laughs> they're not actually sharing true emotion. They're just talking about words or concepts as constructs. Yeah. The movie kind of made the distinction between feelings and emotion, where they did feel things. He felt nervous about his selection. What's it called? Like his role? Becoming 12 and his vocation. Assigned or, a role. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. So they did experience feelings, but they didn't have the true depth of emotion that really stirs you deep inside mm. and forms you as a person and influences your actions. So it was just the very surface mm. level of emotion. It's pretty unfair of them to put the entire weight of the history of the world into a single person in the community. All of the depth of the suffering and the pain, as well as all of the joy and the love and the laughter, it's pretty unfair to have this one single person in a community of, I don't know, hundreds, thousands, whatever it is. Speaking of which, actually, just on a complete aside, sustainability. They only have one boy and one girl child per household. That's pretty good, isn't it, Laurie? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> They're just doing replacement value, right? <laughs> That's a lesson for all of us, that one. <laughs> it's Laurie's utopia It is <laughs> It's an awful thing that they're doing to the giver It's an awful thing that they're trying to do to Jonas To have the weight of all of this pain on his shoulders I just think that's pretty harsh Like no wonder the previous one wanted to be released Like I just, oh, it's awful Not only that, there's no redundancy Come on guys Mm, good point. But there's no murder, though. Like, how are you going to die? There's no cars. What are you going to do? You're going to have a bike accident that's so serious. You're probably only allowed to ride at a certain speed. I, I just, I think you're kind of stuck. Yeah, but anyone could die of a brain aneurysm at any point in time. Oh, can they? Who knows? Maybe it's so far into the future that they've figured out all of that stuff. Uh, all the memories will get released. There'll be chaos for a week or two. And then they'll just scoop them all up with their little dream catchers. <laughs> Or however it works. <laughs> Bottle them up. Stick them back into some other poor side, maybe. It certainly has a really lovely commentary on what it is to be human and what it is to experience a world without joy, what it might be to experience a world without pain. Can you truly appreciate happiness and family if you haven't also experienced loss, why we are human and what makes us human and... I really liked that. Hmm. I did too, definitely. Hmm. I thought that it was actually a really interesting dystopia because these people are generally happy. Well, generally, that's not the right word, is it? They're generally content with their lot. It is very rare to seek to do something different. They are selected for careers or vocations based on their attributes and their natural tendencies. That seems quite nice. Nobody wants to be the poop scooper, though. <laughs> yeah, but they don't seem to have anger or they don't seem to have dissatisfaction. They're all on their little happy drugs all day long and don't know any different. They're all contributing to society and that's what they feel is sufficient. 
Mm. It's an interesting way of going about it. You've pretty much said all the things that I was going to say about it other than pointing out the emotions. And I already said something about how I thought it was just really nicely adapted concepts for a young adult audience. It was really well put together. It was really short and I can't believe how thought-provoking I found it given that it was in under 200 pages. It was snappy, wasn't it? It really was. You're really drawn quickly into the world. You grow to appreciate the society and how it all fits together. And then all of a sudden I was like, I've only got 15% or something to go. (laughs) And there's still not been the event that is going to cause the end of the book. I wondered if there was going to be a series or something, but it really ties it so neatly together. I think it's just really well constructed. Yeah, and I don't want to cause heartache for one particular listener (laughs) who was a bit upset by my review of Northern Lights last episode, but it really was a stark contrast going from Northern Lights, which was long, perhaps had a few too many unnecessary scenes and seemed to stretch on forever. It was also a very long book. It felt long and it was long, whereas this one was short and I think we all blew through it. Mm, Devoured it. I really, really enjoyed it. It was not my light-hearted Anastasia Krupnik series, but it was something much better, much more well-rounded and something that I will definitely recommend to other people to read. Keith, what did you think? Like both of you, I really liked this book. It was engrossing and it was thought-provoking. And even though, as we've touched on, it was extremely efficient with the writing, I could imagine the controlled world that this boy lived in. So despite that brevity, it was really effective. And this rang true not just for the world, but also for the introduction of conflict and tension into that world. The third person omniscient telling through Jonas really drew me into him as a character. And even though we only saw glimpses of his human characteristics early on, I still was able to identify with him and really wanted him to do well. I really liked how Lois slowly revealed the idealistic community to be anything but utopian. Of course, we kind of knew that as a reader, but particularly for children reading it, it would have been a nice way of introducing that conflict and tension that I talked of before. In particular, the revelation that no one in the world saw colour, I thought was masterfully done. Laurie disagrees with that. No, 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 I don't. I do think it was masterfully done, and I was surprised and delighted when it did happen. I just didn't like that I didn't know how it was achieved. Go on. Okay. There's a few things in there that are like that. You don't know how they're achieved, and we've touched on some of them. In this case, of course, Jonas is not going to be able to point out to the reader early on that they don't see colour because they don't know what colour is. So learning about colour alongside Jonas was fantastic. As we've just mentioned, there's a few minor mechanical issues that Laurie's had with some of the memory control stuff, how there's a shared memory space in the community. I would have liked to have learnt more about that. And that's also the case for the way memories are passed to Jonas from the giver. But the more I think about it, it's probably better that Larry didn't go into too much detail about this sort of stuff because it would have taken away from some of the themes of the book surrounding free will, what it is to live a human experience as opposed to simply just comfortably existing. So retrospectively, even though at the time I was thinking, I want to know how this stuff works. I don't mind that it wasn't in there. I thought if you go down to that level of detail, you're trapping yourself as a writer. So I like that she didn't do that, particularly for a book that's aimed at a youthful audience. It is something that potentially ages as well. I did want to know, but if you do put a specific mechanism based on current science rather than science fiction, future science type stuff, then something that might get disproven later or our views about that current technology might change. 
it's a timeless sort of book, partly because of that omission of detail in things like this. So I think it served well for the longevity of this book. Overall, I really like that for the second episode in a row, we have a book that above all else champions free thought. Despite them being vastly different in just about every respect, this is fantastic. We want books to encourage children and young adults to think, without prescribing to them what to think. The giver was not at all didactic, and the more that I hear from Lois Lowry, the more I like her. If you haven't read this book, no matter what your age is, you should go out and read it right away. Nice. Yay. You should read Anastasia Krupnik. (laughs) You know what? I can almost certainly predict that he won't enjoy it as much as this book. No. (laughs) I don't have to know anything about it. It's a bit like fudge and whatever. I think you'd find it quite fun. Oh, really? (laughs) That's Mm. tempting. Can I talk a little bit before we get on to the movie about how this book was written? Yes, please. Yes. Because I think it's interesting when we talk about how similar this is to other books that have been written well before it. It's similar in some ways, but very dissimilar in others. And I think the origins of it are interesting. So the idea for this book was set in Lois Lowry's mind when she had an interaction with her aging father in his 90s. He was losing his memory and had forgotten the passing of his first child. That's Lois's older sister, Helen. And looking at photographs, she had to explain it to him. And as you would expect, learning of this saddened him. At the same time, it had planted the idea in Lois's head about how comfortable it would be to simply forget about bad things that had happened. And being a writer, this started to form a story in her mind. There's a bit missing there, Keith, that her mum was also ageing. She wasn't losing her memories, though. She was desperate to pass them on, pass on the stories of her life before it was too late. So she had, on the one hand, her mother passing the memories down, and on the other hand, her father that was losing memories. And yeah, I thought that was interesting. Go on. Yeah, definitely. It is very interesting. So yeah, that idea was formed in her mind and she's a writer, obviously, and she's a writer who's focused on adolescence prior to this. So that's where she formulated the idea for the character Jonas. And that was kind of the seed for the book, the idea that memory and specifically the suppression of memory, and as Laurie said there, the passing on of memory. And that's precisely why the book had to be set in the future, because it needed to be in a time where science has advanced enough to be able to manipulate memory, and through doing so, to more effectively control human behaviour, which was a problem for Lois, because she'd never really written anything set in the future previously. So these kind of quaint and nostalgic ideas about memory got quickly transformed into this speculative science fiction novel. The idea for the community itself was fostered around removing all of the troubling, worrisome and dangerous elements from modern society. I think the base ideas were fostered when she lived in Japan as an 11-year-old. Her father was stationed there after World War II and they lived in a small American community there. It was a comfortable and safe sort of community that was walled off from the surrounding areas. And when she was actually writing the book, she lived in Boston. She looked out and everything she saw there that was worrying, the homelessness, the poverty, the unemployment, the prejudice, the traffic, just the general idea that crimes were being committed out there, they had to be removed from the world. And that's how she went about creating this futuristic community by removing these dangerous things, these elements that unsettle people to make it more comfortable. Mm. I thought it was interesting, the origins of that. It grew over time, started as early as when she was an 11-year-old and then through to her aging parents and yeah it's an interesting kind of metamorphosis of this idea i loved reading that when she was in that gated community of americans in japan after the war that 
she was one of the few people that would get on her bike and just pedal out the gates and go on adventures. She wasn't one of the people that would stay inside all the time and just feel safe amongst familiarity, but instead would go off and seek new and interesting experiences outside the walls and then obviously return home. She's a pretty fascinating woman, so it rings true that, yes, she, from an early age, was kind of breaking through barriers, literally. (laughs) I did also read she was an introvert, so that's interesting as well, that despite that, when she was young, she was busting out and seeking new adventures, but she considers herself an introvert, and she says that people that are introverts often form relationships with books and start to develop language in a different way and she thinks that's one of the prime reasons she became a writer is because she liked to stay inside and read books and got an affinity with language that allowed her to develop as a writer later on. Hmm. So, Laurie and Bree, you guys both watched the movie. We did. Yes. Bree, do you want to talk about the all-star cast, primarily because I can never remember the names of any actors ever? <laughs> it was pretty impressive, actually. I thought it was going to be second rate. I never heard the movie. It's actually not that old. It was 2012 and it's got my very favourite Alexander Skarsgård. It's also got Katie Holmes. So Skarsgård plays the father, the nurturer, the one who kills the baby. Is he still your favourite after both this movie and after the television that, show? And Big Little Lies. Yeah. Oh, my God. Seriously. <laughs> well, look, he's very believable as a nasty man. <laughs> So Skarsgård, Katie Holmes. Uh, Skarsgård, Katie Holmes. Jeff Bridges plays the giver. Yeah, that was badass. Mm. Although every time he talks, I just go straight back to Tron. Oh, I go straight to the newsroom, but whatever. Mm. There's also Meryl Streep who plays the chief elder who has a significant role in this which didn't exist in the book. So there are a few things that have obviously been tricked up for cinema. Was there anyone else? I can't think of anyone else. The kids were... No, no, the kids are just... Rather no names. No names. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They did all right. I think so. I thought they did okay. I think Mm. a couple of them at least will probably end up in other films. Although, when was the movie released? 2012. Oh, okay. I haven't seen them since. Yeah, right. Mm. I don't think it was as successful as the book. It was made in 2012, so that's after Divergent. It's after The Hunger Games. And those movies, in my opinion, have set the bar pretty high for this type of book made to movie. They possibly also had bigger budgets as well, right? Mm. And they had a lot more action, Mm. so probably a bit more palatable to a broad audience, Mm. whereas this is a little bit more slow-paced, a bit of a build-up to a dramatic finish and a bit more of a thinker. And I'm not so sure that they were successful in that, so I feel like if it was meant to be a bit slower-paced, a little bit more thoughtful, then it wasn't done well enough. It wasn't done indie enough almost it was like they were trying to be a big blockbuster but it was not so well executed even cutting in memories and things like that was just a little bit disjointed and it was a bit repetitive coming off the back of divergent and things it was just it was okay i can understand why it didn't make a splash in the shadow of those films but i actually thought it was fairly well done i was surprised at how average the reviews were i thought the acting was pretty solid 
I thought it hit a lot of the themes of the book pretty well. But you're right, it just somehow missed the quality of the book. Mm. It didn't quite make you pause as much as the book did and reflect on the themes. I think it was pretty close, but it was a bit more deserving of a slightly higher average rating than I think it ended up getting. The reviews were pretty savage. I would have been happy to watch this film... On video. Yeah. You're not going to pay money to go to a movie theatre to watch this. No, probably not. You're just not, no. And they changed the story a bit so that as soon as Jonas left the boundary after hiking over deserts and mountains, the community did get their memories back. It wasn't implied, it wasn't suggested, it happened. And it was also not even implied or suggested that he made it to the optimistic family in the chalet. It happened. Yeah, it was pretty overt. It left it on a very positive Hollywood note, which you'd lose some of the magic of that story and the wondering and the reflection, as you just said, on human nature. Mm. And if you take this book independently of those other books, then yes, you're right. It's very unclear and this great joy being lost Did it really happen? Didn't it happen? I I like that uncertainty. Whereas in the movie, you're right, it's a Hollywood Mm. ending. It's He's definitely made it. The baby's made it. He's about to go sing Christmas carols. So Yeah. (laughs) And they introduce the romance and things between him and his platonic friend, Fiona. She stops taking the injections. There's all of those sorts of things. However, I knew what was about to happen to that baby and I had to leave the room. I could not sit there. Just the memory was enough. Mm-hmm. Didn't really affect me. It was fine. (laughs) Yeah, well, stone cold, heartless, whatever. You know what? It didn't quite live up to the magic of the book. I think it was well executed. No. If your English teacher sat you down in a room and said, all right, we've finished reading The Giver, we've discussed it a bit, now we're going to watch the movie, I think you'd be pretty happy with the result. An afternoon where I don't have to study, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but some of those films are pretty crap. I remember the Lord of the Flies movie was just really average compared to the book, whereas this one, I think it gets pretty close, just not quite there. No, didn't do it for me. Keith, I wouldn't bother. Yeah, I'm not going to watch it. Read the book again. I reckon you'll find that you'll end yourself on a more positive note. I reckon I'll find that if I read it again... And I might wait a few years, but I will do it again. And I think I might look at it differently. We could go on to read some of the sequels as well. Some things I found out about the movie and Brie, I'm going to correct you here because it's Jeff Bridges, not Jeff Daniels. Didn't I say Bridges? I had Bridges in my head. You did say Bridges, but then you were talking about the newsroom, which is definitely Jeff Daniels. (sighs) But I did have some similar thoughts run through my head. I was like, is that the guy from Dumb and Dumber? But it's obviously not because that's Jeff Daniels. (laughs) I'm confused. Anyway, that's a massive detour. It's the guy from Tron or the guy from The Big Lebowski. Yeah. True Grit. Yeah, True Grit. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. He actually bought the rights to this as a movie some years ago and wanted to cast his dad. That's Lloyd Bridges as the giver. But as is often the case, getting funding for movies is quite a painful and time-consuming thing and time passed, his dad passed, and all the while he had the rights to it and eventually... It got made. He was no longer the director. That's what his intention was originally, but he was now old enough to play the giver himself. Hmm. When does Jim Carrey come in? (laughs) (laughs) Some of the changes that were required in the movie make a little bit of sense. The fact that they made all the kids older is one that was really for the simple reason that casting children in movies makes them take a hell of a lot longer to film. 
and blows the budget out. So by bumping the age up of these kids meant they could cast adults and therefore could cut down the budget and the time that the movie would take to film. And then it opens up as well, like Bree said, the romantic side of things that they explored in the movie where they didn't in the book. But yeah, there's quite a number of differences in the book, but really... It would have been extremely hard to stay aligned with the book because the book takes place mostly in Jonas's head and it's really hard to do that sort of thing in a movie, particularly a movie for children. Speaking of extremely hard, apparently this is one of the most challenged books. There's a list of the most challenged books and this is somewhere high up on it. The most challenged, what does that mean? It uh, means that if a teacher tries to teach it in a school, parents kick up a fuss and have it removed from the curriculum or from the library. Oh. It's a book that usually has themes that are controversial, particularly to conservative groups in society. Mm-hmm. So some of the themes or some of the events in the book, like the mention of stirrings, that's when you start entering adolescence and you start getting adolescent urges and then promptly start getting your medicine, your drugs, so they all go away, is one of the things that made it a highly challenged book. There's something else in there that was controversial. Couldn't be the baby killing, could it? Might be the baby killing. No, I think it's something else. It's not like it's challenging religion or anything like that. It's just giving some thought-provoking themes. Yeah, no, I agree. It's interesting because the film company that made it is Walden Media, and they're quite a conservative filmmaking company. They make a lot of children's books turned into movies. It wouldn't be normal for them to pick up something that's challenged for legitimate reasons. Here we go. A challenged book is one that a person or a group of people has tried to have removed from library shelves. Why has the giver been challenged? Some say it's too violent, apparently. The release, which is the infanticide and euthanasia. The stirrings. It's not like they're beating each other with sticks. (laughs) It's not violent. It's just disgusting. It is just a horrible concept. I love that that's your barometer for violence. Well, there was no (laughs) sticks, so it's kind of acceptable. (laughs) If you are studying the book or if you just want some further reading, there's actually a really good study guide. It's on the Scholastic website. If you just search the Giver study notes, it's a PDF that shows up in the first page of Google results. And there's a really good quote from Lois Lowry that says, How does Lois Lowry feel about the Giver being such a frequently challenged book? And she says, quote, I think it's an honour I would prefer to forego. It's a difficult situation, unquote. Lowry worries about the chilling effect such controversy can have on librarians and teachers and what it means regarding whether or not the book will be read. Quote, Even though they, librarians and teachers, may like a book and want to teach the book, they don't have time to deal with the bureaucracy that's required and they're likely to choose a less controversial book. So she'd rather forego the controversy slash publicity to get her book taught in classes or read in classrooms or from libraries. Hmm. We might have covered it off enough earlier on, but I will ask, how do you feel about the existence of sequels? Would you have preferred this to end as is, or are you actually intrigued to read on and have other stories come from similar communities? I don't reckon I'll read on, to be honest. I'm quite happy leaving it as it is. It's been a really interesting commentary and quite thought-provoking, and it's left me with a lot of questions, but I don't feel a need to know the answers. I feel like this is a society where we can get the answers to so many questions. It's nice to have something left to think about. Mm. Sorry for providing that answer then, Bree. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Keith? Yeah, I'm pretty similar to Brie in that it was nice reading the end of it and having the thoughts about, oh, was it a happy ending? Was it the end? How did it go? I like the ambiguity there at the time. 
I also, in a strange way, like knowing actually what happened now, but I won't be going on and reading the rest of the books. It's more what happens to the community. Now that I know that Jonas and the Baby survived, it's what happens to the community after they leave that I'm interested in. So when that 25th anniversary book comes out, I'm going to be all over it. (laughs) I'm not sure where it fits in the timeline, whether the next book is set immediately after the events of this book in a different community, but it's about a girl who was born with only one leg, but she isn't euthanized. And it's about her and the challenges she faces from a community that sees her as a burden a one-legged person in the community where Jonah lived that would be released quick smart Mm -hmm. so it's a daily struggle to justify her own existence and ah that kind of sounds interesting but I don't know if I want to read any further I might just want to keep this as a single solitary confined encapsulated book The annoying thing is that I suspect I would really enjoy all of the sequels if I made the time to read them. Right. (laughs) Maybe go and discover some of her other works. You're really pushing that one hard, Brie, aren't you? (laughs) Not just that one, but there was another one that I remember about two sisters who were always really jealous of each other, and I'm pretty sure one of them gets cancer or something like that. What's that book called? Well, we won't have to bother reading that one. (laughs) Also joyful, (laughs) but also a commentary on family and so on. Hmm. Any who's? (laughs) Shall I score it? Yes, you should. Thank you. One star. This one is grey, boring, samey. Two stars. Yellow, mellow, lacking vigour. Three stars. Blue, reaching for the sky but doesn't quite get there. Four stars. Green, life bringing to the genre of young adult fiction. And five. Red hot, invigorating, passionate, crisp, crunchy, just like an apple. Yum. Keith? I'm going to go with... Green with tinges of red, it's four and a half for me. (laughs) What holds you back from going the full five stars? I think just the questionability of some of the concepts in there that aren't explained in full. Mm, Okay. Laurie? For me, it's held back from a crunchy red apple five. I'll probably go with a four. I really enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the characters. I liked most of the mechanisms that drove the story. I just wish some of them were explained a bit better. I'll leave it at that. Four stars. From the man who loves Brog the Stoop, I think that's a little... What? That was that had wonderful reaching. and perfectly <laughs> explained mechanisms. You had a giant disc that rotated and lit up the world. And so many other faults. This one's clearly a five stars. I loved it. Good one. So glad you selected this, Brie, even though last episode I had some worries when you laughed almost evilly <laughs> after remembering that you'd selected it. <laughs> Just so you know, listeners, we select these months in advance in most cases. So you forget when it's coming up, whether you've chosen a contemporary or a classic. Well, sadly, our time together comes to close for another episode, but we're glad you joined us. If you've beef, a story to tell, or a book you'd like to add to our growing list of recommendations, then please join us on Twitter at Seeking Tumnus or on Facebook. If you've been listening for a while and particularly enjoy the show and are listening on Apple Podcasts, then a quick review would go a long way towards helping others find us as well. Next episode, we'll be riding just behind the wave of current trends, paddling hard to catch up to 13 Reasons Why by Jay Asher. Until then, if you're a calm, obedient, grayscale citizen, uncomfortable change and adverse to disruption, then we... Salute you citizens for the commitments you are showing to your community. Everything is okay. Eh, eh.
everything, everything is okay. And keep reading. Hey folks, just a very quick and very minor correction on what we said earlier. The movie The Giver was released in the latter half of 2014. Divergent showed up in cinemas earlier in the same year. On the youthful actors in The Giver, Jonas was played by Australian Brenton Thwaites. You may recognise him from Maleficent or from the latest Pirates of the Caribbean movie, or even from that staple of Australian television drama, Home and Away. Fiona is Odea Rush, who you might recall from Goosebumps, where she starred alongside Jack Black, and Dylan Minnette, who you will hear all about in our next episode when we talk about 13 Reasons Why, as he played central character Clay in the Netflix adaptation. Rosemary was played by some nobody called Taylor Swift. And finally, a special thanks to Bronte, who as it turns out was also behind Bree's selection of The Giver. Now let's try that ending again. Welcome to... Sorry, keep going, Larry. <laughs> we should do that. Yeah, I know. We should do that. By the power of grayscale. <laughs> oh, you managed to slide one in right at the end. It's been a while. Nice. <laughs>